This episode is brought to you by Viore Clothing, spelled V-U-O-R-I, Viore. I've been wearing Viore at least one item per day for the last few months, and you can use it for everything. It's performance apparel, but it can be used for working out. It can be used for going out to dinner, at least in my case. I feel very comfortable with it. Super comfortable, super stylish, and I just want to read something that one of my employees said. She is an athlete. She is quite technical, although she would never say that. I asked her if she had ever used or heard of Viore, and this was her response. I do love their stuff. Been using them for about a year. I think I found them at REI, first for my partner, t-shirts that are super soft but somehow last as he's hard on stuff. And then I got into the super soft cotton yoga pants and jogger sweatpants. I live in them and they too have lasted. They're stylish enough I can wear them out and about. The material is just super soft and durable. I just got their Clementine running shorts for summer and love them. The brand seems pretty popular, constantly sold out. In closing, and I'm abbreviating here, but in closing, with the exception of when I need technical outdoor gear, they're the only brand I've bought in the last year or so for yoga, running, loungewear that lasts and that I think look good also. I like the discreet logo. So that gives you some idea. That was not intended for the sponsor read. Uh, that was just her response via text. Viori, again spelled V-U-O-R-I, is designed for maximum comfort and versatility. You can wear it running. You can wear their stuff training, doing yoga, lounging, weekend errands, or in my case, again, going out to dinner. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Their clothing is so comfortable and uh, looks so good, and it's it's non-offensive. You don't have a huge brand logo in your face. You'll just want to be in them all the time. And my girlfriend and I have been wearing them for the last few months. They're men's core short, K-O-R-E. The most comfortable lined athletic short is your one short for every sport. I've been using it for kettlebell swings, for runs, you name it. The Banks short, this is their go-to-land to see short is the ultimate in versatility. It's made from recycled plastic bottles. And what I'm wearing right now, which if I had to pick one to recommend to folks out there, or at least to men out there, is the Ponto Performance Pant. And you'll find these at the link I'm going to give you guys. You can check out what I'm talking about. But I'm wearing them right now. They're thin performance sweatpants, but that doesn't do them justice. So you got to check it out. P-O-N-T-O, Ponto Performance Pant. For you ladies, the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Viore isn't just an investment in your clothing, it's an investment in your happiness. And for you, my dear listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. It's super popular. A lot of my friends I've now noticed are wearing this, and so am I. VioriClothing.com forward slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. So check it out. VioriClothing.com slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash Tim. And discover the versatility of Viore Clothing. This episode is brought to you by Theragun. I have two Theraguns, and they're worth their weight in gold. I've been using them every single day. Whether you're an elite athlete or just a regular person trying to get through your day, muscle pain and muscle tension are real things. That's why I use the Theragun. I use it at night. I use it after workouts. It is a handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension. So for instance, at night, I might use it on the bottom of my feet. It's helped with my plantar fasciitis. I will 
have my girlfriend use it up and down the middle of my back and I'll use it on her. It's an easy way for us to actually trade massages in effect. And you can think of it, in fact, as massage reinvented on some level. Helps with performance, helps with recovery, helps with just getting your back to feel better before bed after you've been sitting for way too many hours. I love this thing. And the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that is surprisingly quiet. It's easy to use and about as quiet as an electric toothbrush. It's pretty astonishing. And you really have to feel the Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness to believe it. It's one of my favorite gadgets in my house at this point. So I encourage you to check it out. Try Theragun. That's Thera, T-H-E-R-A-G-U-N. There's no substitute for the Gen 4 Theragun with an OLED screen. That's O-L-E-D for those wondering. That's organic light emitting diode screen, personalized Theragun app, and an incredible combination of quiet and power. And the Gen 4 Theraguns start at just $199. I said I have two. I have the Prime, and I also have the Pro, which is like the super Cadillac version. My girlfriend loves the soft attachments on that. So try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Go to therabody.com slash Tim right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. One more time, that's therabody.com slash Tim, T-H-E-R-A-B-O-D-Y dot com slash Tim. Trigger action plan. That's what you need, pal. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I answer your personal question? Now we're just seeing a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. My guest today is William McCaskill. That's M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L. You can find him on Twitter, at Will McCaskill. Will is an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Oxford. At the time of his appointment, he was the youngest associate professor of philosophy in the world. A Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneur, he also co-founded the nonprofits Giving What We Can, the Center for Effective Altruism, and the Y Combinator-backed 80,000 Hours, which together have moved over $200 million to effective charities. You can find my 2015 conversation with Will at tim.blog slash Will. Just a quick side note, we probably won't spend too much time on this, but in that 2015 conversation, we talked about existential risk and the number one highlight was pathogens. Although we didn't use the word pandemic, certainly that was perhaps a prescient discussion based on the type of research, the many types of research that Will does. His new book is What We Owe the Future. It is blurbed by several guests of this podcast, including neuroscientist and author Sam Harris, who wrote, quote, no living philosopher has had a greater impact upon my ethics than Will McCaskill, dot, dot, dot. This is an altogether thrilling and necessary book, end quote. You can find him online, williammccaskill.com. Will, nice to see you again. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me back on. It's a delight. And I thought we would start with some say, warm-up questions to get people right into some details of how you think, the information you consume, and so on and so forth. So we're going to begin with a few questions I often reserve for the end of conversations. And we covered some of the other rapid-fire questions in the last conversation for people who want a lot on your bio, how you ended up 
being the youngest associate professor of philosophy in the world at the time of your appointment, and so on. They can listen to our first conversation. But we spoke about a few books last time, and I'd be curious, what is the book or what are the books that you have given most as a gift and why? Or what are some books that have had a great influence on you? I know we talked already about Practical Ethics by Peter Singer and then Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom last time. But do any other books come to mind when I ask that question? Yeah, so here are a couple. One is The Precipice by my colleague Toby Ord, who I co-founded Giving What We Can With back in 2009. And it's on the topic of existential risks. So I see it as a, a complement to my book, What We Are the Future. And it details in quite beautiful prose and also painstaking detail some of the risks that we face as a civilization, from the familiar asteroids to the less familiar supervolcanoes and to the truly terrifying, which I also discuss in the book and discuss how we might try and handle like artificial intelligence and engineered pathogens and engineered pandemics. And it also just talks about what we can do about them as well. And so I think it's just like absolutely necessary as a read. We'll talk, I guess, a, a bunch about some of those topics as we get into my work too. So I have like another kind of set of books, which are quite different, but they've had some of the biggest impact on just the background of my thinking over the last few years in very subtle ways. And that's Joe Heinrich's books, Secret of Our Success and the Weirdest People in the World. And <laughs> Joe Heinrich is a quantitative anthropologist at Harvard. And his first book is just Why Are Humans the Most Powerful and Ecologically Dominant Species on the Planet? And people often say, like, oh, it's our big brains. And he's like, no. <laughs> our brains are, are several times the size of a chimpanzee's brain. But that's not the distinctive thing. The distinctive thing is that we work together, essentially. We're capable of cumulative cultural evolution, where I can learn something and then my children will pick it up from me, even if they don't really understand why I'm doing it. And that means that the way humans function, it's not like a single brain that's three times the size of a chimpanzee. It's tens of thousands of brains all working in concert, and now millions of brains, over many generations. And that's why there's such a big gap between chimpanzee ability or intelligence and human intelligence, where it's not a scale up of 3x, it's a scale up of 300,000. The hive mind of hominids. Basically, that's exactly right. So on this perspective, humans are not just another species that are like weird and not hairy and particularly sweaty and good at long distance running. Aristotle commented that humans are the rational animal and that's what made them distinct from other animals. Whereas actually we're just very sweaty and that's one of our most distinctive characteristics. <laughs> and I like to think that I am therefore the most human of humans because I'm the sweatiest person I've, I've met. <laughs> so he has this book and that alone just, you know, really blew my mind. It really made a big difference to how I understand humans. And he has this other book, The Weirdest People in the World, which is about the psychology in particular of weird people, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, which are the subject of almost all psychology experiments, but they're not representative at all of most cultures. In fact, they're very unusual among most cultures, much more individualistic, much more willing to challenge authority, even perceive the world in slightly different ways. And the overall picture you get from these two books is 
an understanding of kind of human behavior that's very different from the kind of economic understanding of human behavior is that we're all these just like self-interested agents going around trying to kind of maximize profit for ourselves. Whereas on this vision, it's like, no, we're these cultural beings. We have like a vision for the world and we go and like try and put that vision into the world. And that's what the kind of big fights are about. And I think it has a much better explanation of, of history. When you said quantitative, I think you said quantitative anthropologist. Am I hearing that correctly? What is a quantitative anthropologist? I know those two words separately, and I can can pretend like I understand what those mean together, but what does a quantitative anthropologist do? So you might know kind of evolutionary biology has -hmm. these formal models of how genes evolve over time. It's hard to make predictions within this field, but at least you have these like precise formal methods that you like can start to kind of understand what's going on in terms of how organisms evolve. Now, it turns out you can do the same thing, but applied to cultures. Dawkins made this word meme very famous. And that kind of gets across the right idea, although it's not quite right, because it's not like there's a single divisible unit of culture. But nonetheless, you can think of different cultures kind of like different species. And some are like more fit than others. So some are going to win out over time. And you can apply the same sort of like formal methods that evolutionary biologists use to study evolution of genetics to the evolution of cultures as well. And Joe Henrik does that at least a little bit. All right. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to take a look. Now, we were talking, well, we, using the royal we, you were talking about, I suppose I mentioned in passing, existential risks and threats. And I have a number of questions related to this, not surprisingly, but I want to touch upon first, perhaps an unexpected insertion. I have in my notes here, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky (laughs) as a book that was important to you. And I would like to know why that is the case. That book is actually what got me into philosophy originally. Back when I was about 15, I read it. And I was at a time very interested in literature. I wanted to be a poet and an author. And it was via that that I learned about this word philosophy. And I realized that like, oh, actually, you can just tackle the big ideas directly. You don't need to go via fiction. But I was also particularly interested in the time in existentialist philosophy. And this is something that honestly, like, I kind of still bear with me. I'm kind of a bit unusual in that I often think to myself, could I justify my life now to my 15-year-old self? And if the answer is no, then I'm a bit like, oh, what are you doing? You're not living up to what earlier Will would have wanted for present Will. And the key thing, I think, for 15-year-old Will, who was inspired by existentialism, was living an authentic life. And I still find that very liberating and empowering and inspiring. So some of the things I do, so for example, I've, I give away most of my income, which is like a very unusual thing to do. And you might think, oh, that's like a sacrifice. It's making my life worse. But actually I find it kind of empowering because it's like, I am making an autonomous decision. I am not merely kind of following the dictates of what social convention is telling me to do, but I'm like reasoning about things from first principles and then making a decision that's genuinely authentically mine. And that was something I hadn't particularly pegged it to kind of acting morally when I was 15, although to some extent, but that was something that really moved me then and honestly continues to move me today. 
How would you just, I often say for the listeners out there who may not be familiar, but honestly, if I'm being honest with myself, I have not studied existentialism and I hear certain names associated with it so I can kind of fake it until I make it and give it, create the illusion. I'll be like, ah, you know, Kierkegaard, I think maybe uh, this person, that person. But what, what is existentialism as it is portrayed in Crime and Punishment or conveyed? One of the things I liked about Crime and Punishment and Dostoevsky's work in particular, it at least is wrestling with existentialism. Word can get used in various ways. But here, one way of thinking about it is just the world as it is has no intrinsic meaning. <laughs> and yet we are like placed into it and have to make decisions. And that's this like absurd position to be in. And you can create your own meaning out of that through radically free acts, like authentic, genuine acts. And Dostoevsky, in his work, kind of wrestles between three positions, I think. One is this like existentialist position. A second is just pure nihilism, which is just like actually literally, if you take it seriously, like, and there's no God, then everything is permitted. There's no reason to do anything not even like reason created from yourself. And then third is this religious position, which I think he actually ultimately endorses. And it's almost like nihilism as like a proof. <laughs> the rejection of nihilism like therefore guarantees that you should be like religious. QED, God. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, it's like li life is meaningless unless God exists, you know, I'm now describing it in slightly Pascalian terms, but like you may as well act as if, as if there's a God that is giving meaning to life. We're not going to spend a whole bunch of time on it now, but in our last conversation, we talked about Pascal's wager, but also Pascal's mugging, if I remember correctly. Yeah, uh, something, good. Yeah. Some, something along those lines. So we won't take a side alley down into Pascal's mugging just now, but I said I had two things I wanted to ask you about. The first was crime and punishment, which I think we've covered. The second, before we jump into our longer conversation, which will go all over the place. And I, I may ask still some of the shorter questions. When people hear existential threats, when they hear super volcanoes, AI, man-made pathogens, etc., I think that there will likely be an apprehension, perhaps a little seizure of the breath for some people listening who might think to themselves, my God, this is just going to be audio doom scrolling. This is just going to come away from this conversation with higher blood pressure, more cortisol. And my impression of you in the time that we've spent together is that you are not nihilistic. You are not apathetic. You are not pessimistic. You're quite the opposite of all of those things in some respects. How do you do that? Is that just will out of the box? And that's just how you came programmed? Is there more to it? And this is, I think, a crux question because I don't see in the people, say, in my audience, including those who are very competent, effective action if they don't have some degree mm -hmm. of optimism or belief that they can exert change. So could you just speak to that? Because I know I also succumb to just getting waterboarded bad news all day from yeah. around the world. I'm like, I can't do, I can't, <laughs> I cannot put a salve onto all of this for all of these people. And it can be overwhelming. So how would you respond to that? I think there's two things that motivate this. One is just 
the desire to actually make the world better. And then second, I'll call low standards. So <laughs> <laughs> on the first side, you know, age 21, and I'm like, man, I'm about to really start my life. I'm trying to look for like, I want to act morally. I'm trying to look for different causes. I bounce into a lot of the sorts of classic causes that you'd find on a social, for someone socially motivated on a college campus, like vegetarian society, left-wing politics, climate change stuff. I found there was very little in the way of action. There was an awful lot of like guilt and an awful lot of talking about the problems, but not that much in terms of like, hey, here are the solutions. This is how you can actually make the world better. And this is what we should do. But if you actually care about what, making, wanting to make the world better, and that's the key motivation, the size of a problem and like really thinking about the suffering, I mean, it can be important, especially if it's motivating you. But the ultimate thing is just what do you do? Something could be the worst problem in the world, but if there's nothing you can do, then it's just not relevant for the purpose of action. And that therefore really makes me think in the first instance, always about, okay, well, what's the difference we can make? Not like how scary are things or how bad are things, but instead like how much of a difference can we make? And there it's like very positive. So in the last podcast, we talked about a lot about global health and development. And what's the difference you can make there? Well, if you're a middle-class member of a rich country, it's on the order of saving dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of lives over the course of your life, if you put your mind to it. That's huge. Now we're talking about existential risks and the long-term future of humanity. What's the difference you can make? You can play a part in being pivotal, in putting humanity onto a better trajectory for not just centuries, but for thousands, millions, or even billions of years. The amount of good that you can do is like truly enormous you can have like cosmic significance. And that's kind of, that's pretty inspiring. And so, yeah, when you think about the difference you can make rather than just like focusing on the magnitude of the problems, I think there's every reason for optimism. And then the second aspect I've said was low standards, <laughs> which is just, what's a world that you should be sad about? What's a world you should be happy with? Well, in my own case, I think, look, if I came into the world and when I leave it, the world is neither better nor worse. That's like zero. I should be indifferent about that. If I can make it a bit better in virtue of my existence, hey, that's pretty good. The more good I can do on top of that, the better. And I think I have made it much better. I'm not zero. I'm like positive. And so all of the additional good that I potentially do feels like a bonus. And so similarly with humanity, when I look to the future, what's the level at which I'm like, ah, it's indifferent. That's where just like the amount of happiness and suffering in the future kind of cancel out. And relative to that, I think the future is going to be amazing. Already, I think the world today is like much better than if it didn't exist. And <laughs> I think it's going to be a lot better than the future. Like even just the progress we've made over the last few hundred years, people today have like far, far better lives. If you extrapolate that out just, you know, a few hundred years more, let alone thousands of years, then there's at least a good chance that we could have a future where everyone lives not just as well as the best people off alive today, but maybe tens, hundreds, thousands of times better. Yeah. I mean, kings a few hundred years ago didn't have running water, right? <laughs> no. They, or air they conditioning. Didn't, they, didn't have a, they didn't have anesthetic. Yeah. No antibiotics. Oops. If they were gay, they had to keep it secret. They could barely yeah. travel. Yeah. Lots of things we easily take for granted, which we can come back to because it may be related, but why don't we take 
60 to 120 seconds just for you to explain effective altruism. Your name is often associated just so we have a definition of terms and people have yep. some idea of the scope and meaning of effective altruism since you're considered uh, one of the creators or co-creators of this entire movement. If you wouldn't mind just explaining that briefly and uh, that way people will have at least that as a landmark as we go forward. Effective altruism is a philosophy and a community that's about trying to figure out how can we do as much good as possible with the time and money we have, and then taking action on that basis, so putting those ideas into practice to actually try to make the world better as effectively as possible, whether that's through our donations, with our careers, with how we vote, with our consumption decisions, just with our entire lives. What have been some of the outcomes of that? Over, you know, I've been promoting these ideas along with others for over 12 years now. We've raised well over or moved well over the billion dollars to the most effective causes. So that means if we take just one charity that we've raised money for against Malaria Foundation, we've protected over 400 million people, mainly children, from malaria. And statistically, that means we've saved about 100,000 lives or maybe a little more, which is, you know, the size of a small town, about the size of Oxford. And that's just one charity. There's several more within global health and development. I think in terms of other cause areas that we focused on within animal health and welfare, hundreds of millions of hens are no longer in cages because of corporate cage-free campaigns that we've helped to fund. And then within the field of existential risks, there are. it's not as easy to say, oh, we've done this concrete thing, this thing would have killed us all, but we avoided it. But we have helped make AI safety a much more mainstream field of the search. People are taking the potential benefits, but also the risks from AI like much more seriously than they were. We are also like have invested a lot in certain pandemic preparedness measures. Again, it's kind of still early stages, but some of the technology there or things I think have really promising potential traction, at least making sure that COVID-19 is the last pandemic we ever have. One of the many things I appreciate about you and also Broadly speaking, many people in the effective altruism community slash movement is the taking of a systematic approach to not just defining, but questioning assumptions and quantitatively looking at how you can do good, not just feel good, if that makes sense. And that seems yeah. obvious to anyone who's in the community, but the vast majority of philanthropy or charity, broadly speaking, is done without that type of approach, from what I can tell. And it's really worth taking a closer look for those people listening. Are there just a few URLs you'd like to mention for people who'd like to dig into that, and then we can move into some of the more current questions? If you're interested in how to use your career to make the world better, then 80,000hours.org is a terrific place to go. I'm a co-founder of that organization, gives in-depth career advice and one-on-one -on -one career coaching as well. If you're interested in donating some of your money, then givingwhatwecan.org encourages people to take a giving pledge, typically 10% of one's income or more. It's a great way to live. If you're interested in donating to effective charities, then givewell.org is the single best place for donating to global health and development charities. That's givewell.org. There's also the Effective Altruism Funds, or EA Funds, that allow you to donate within animal welfare and existential risks. 
and promotion of these ideas as well. All right. A few more calisthenics, then we're going to go into the heavy lifting, the max squats of sure. long-termism. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In the last, say, five years, you can pick the time frame, but recent history, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I think the biggest one of all, and this was really big during writing the book, which was this you know, enormous challenge. It was like my main focus for two years over the course of the pandemic, was evening check-ins with an employee of mine who also functioned a bit like a productivity coach. So every evening, I would set deadlines for the next day, both input and output. So input would be how many hours of tracked writing I would do, where going to the bathroom did not count. And <laughs> a, really big, a really big day would be six hours. Sometimes, very occasionally, I'd kind of get more than that. And also output goals as well. So I'd say, I will have drafted this section or these sections, or I will have done such and such. I would also normally make some other commitments as well, such as how much time do I spend looking at Reddit on my phone, <laughs> how much caffeine am I allowed to drink? Do I exercise? Things like this. And Laura Pomerius, who was doing it, is wonderful and the nicest person ever. And she just never beat me up about this. But I would beat myself up and it would make me, it was incredibly effective at making sure I was just like actually doing things. Because I, like many others, find writing, it's like hard. It's like hard to get motivated. It's hard to keep going. And Sometimes, I don't know, I'd have gotten drunk the night before, let's say, and it was a Sunday. And normally you just, it would be a write-off for the whole day. But I think like, oh no, I'd just be so embarrassing at 7 p.m. to have to tell Laura, like, yeah, I didn't do any work because I got smashed. <laughs> and so instead I would feel hungover and I would just keep typing away. And that was just huge. I mean, I think it increased my productivity. I don't know, it feels like 20% or 25% or something just from these like 10 minute check-ins every day. So these were 10-minute check-ins, seven days a week? What was the cadence? I was working six days a week. So yeah, if she was doing something else at the weekend, we wouldn't check in. Right. So the format would be, walk me through 10 minutes, would be the first five minutes. Here's how I measured up to what I committed, and here's what I'm doing next. Exactly. So you have a view of the day. Did I hit my input goal, my output goal? How much caffeine did I drink? Did I exercise? And then also, like, was I getting any migraines or back pain, which are two kind of ongoing issues for my productivity? And then next would be a discussion of what I would try to do the following day. And interestingly, you might think of a productivity coach as someone who's, like, really putting your, like, nose to the grindstone. Whereas with Laura, that's kind of the opposite, because my problem is that I beat myself up too much. And so we so would have a like conversation. she's like luring E.T. out of the closet <laughs> with the Reese's Pieces candy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I would be like, oh, I got so little done today, so I'm going to have to just have a 12-hour day tomorrow or something. Or like, I'll work through the night or something like that. And she's like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, we've tracked this before, and when you try and do this, maybe you get like an hour of extra work, but you feel horrible for days afterwards. So she would be very good at like countering bullshit that my brain would be saying, basically. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. It's summer 2022, and many small business owners are busier than ever. Finding the right candidate to join your business can be the leverage you need to be able to ignore the trivial, delegate some of the urgent stuff, and focus on longer-term strategic decisions. The big picture. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier to grow your team by helping you find the people you want to interview 
faster, and for free. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of more than 800 million people. Then add your job in the purple hashtag hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring so your network can help you find the right people. Simple tools like screening questions make it easy to focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Tim. That's linkedin.com slash Tim to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So a couple of things. Caffeine, what were your parameters on caffeine? Like what were the limitations or minimums? I don't know how you said it on caffeine. Uh, and then how did you choose this employee specifically for this and why? Caffeine, I think a big thing is just if I drink too much, I'm likely to get a migraine. So I set my limit at three espressos worth. So about 180 milligrams of caffeine. And I'm very sensitive. So it's like, 180 is legitimate for a sensitive person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's like the, that's kind of the max that I do. Whereas a double espresso is fine. But then it's like shading in between. I'll be like very cautious about. And then how did I choose this person? I think it's like a very subtle thing. The kind of rapport or personal fit you have with someone who can be a good coach where she kind of knew me well enough that she knew the ways to like push me around. The combination of like, Maybe I call it friendly pushiness or something was, was like perfect. <laughs> and it's very, it, you know, it could be very easy to f- go along on either side of that line. Sounds like I need an evening check-in. All right. <laughs> who, is my, who is my victim going to be? All right. Evening Maybe check-ins. we can start it. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'll give you... <laughs> <laughs> Will, I know, I know, I know it's, I know it's four in the morning, but I had to call you for my evening check-in. We're in different time zones for people who may not yeah. have picked up on the, uh, that is not a New Jersey accent that Will has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Comment sidebar on low back pain. I know this came up in our last conversation. Have you not found anything to help? And I may have some suggestions if you would like suggestions, but have you found anything to help? Actually, I've almost completely fixed it. So it was just, I mean, I was working, you know, I was just sitting in a chair, especially, you know, pandemic and like a book for eight hours a day. But it was actually only one period that I started getting lower back pain. I remember in our conversation, you recommended me these boots that, so they could hang upside down. <laughs> and I did buy them, and I confess I never used them, so I'm sorry, Tim. <laughs> failure. Adherence <laughs> failure. No, that, that's a failure of my recommendation. If it's not going to be used, it, it, it doesn't failure. make any sense for me to recommend it. But what I did do, in the end, I just developed my own workout routine, where I got advice from physios and so on. Um, I talked to like loads of doctors in general, people just aren't really engaging with what your problems are and like self-experimentation, I think was just better. And it's also like, the other thing is just all of this takes loads of time. And like, if you're a time-pressed individual, firstly, the advice is often geared towards old people. So it's like very easy stretches or like movement that most people aren't doing. And then secondly, it's like, man, you want to do all of this? It's like two hours or something. How can you do this more efficiently? So I developed my own routine, which involves standing on a BOSU ball. So it's all on a BOSU ball. I got two free weights, 
I do a squat. I'm sitting in like squat position as the resting position. That's very good because it stretches your hip flexors. And for those people who can't see well, he's got his hands in front of his chest. Yeah, imagine... It looks kind of like a prairie dog, but really I think what that symbolizes is he has the dumbbells in front of his chest, like a goblet yeah, exactly. squat, if people know what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. With my like, yeah, legs wide, elbows in between your knees so that your legs are kind of slayed out like that. And you'll feel a stretch on your hip flexors. So cultures that squat to sit actually experience lower rates of back pain. So that was the kind of inspiration there. And then from there, standing up, squat, do a bicep curl up into a shoulder press, go down, then deadlift going into an upright row. That's all in a BOSU ball. And the thoughts here are strengthening your entire kind of anterior pelvic chain. So I think my hypothesis was like, why was I getting this? It's because I was one of an idiot young male who was like, why would you work anything out apart from your beach muscles? What would be the point of that? (laughs) And that majorly distorted my posture. And then I would do that. So kind of one of them every 20 seconds in like two sets of 10 minutes. And then that combined then also with core work. So plank in particular, really just, I think, sorted things out because it's all about, you know, I've had just bad posture for 25 years, (laughs) made worse by like very poor focus at the gym. And so it's like this long process of reconfiguring your body. So it makes more sense. And in particular, as we talked about, I had anterior pelvic tilt. So my, my gut stuck out, my pelvis was too far forward. And so then it's like your glutes tearing that back and then stretching out your hip flexors. Oh, and I invented yeah. my own stretch as well. So um, <laughs> <laughs> for the listeners who don't know, I actually, I was previously married and I took a different name, I took my wife's grandmother's maiden name. So my name wasn't always McCaskill. It used to be Crouch. And so I named this stretch the Will Crouch in honor of my former self. (laughs) Um, It involves hooking your, you stand up, you hook your foot into your two hands and then press out, kind of extend your leg, but pushing against your two hands. And that stretches out this muscle that is, goes all the way from your kind of pelvis up your back. And I've not found any other stretch that, such as that particular muscle, and that was the one that was really causing all the pain. So the muscle is the longissimus thoracis, yes. You do this standing. Uh, Yeah, it's standing. That's right, yeah. It's like a kid-and-play dance move. Okay, so people may just, I'll put my liability hat on, I'll just say maybe start on the ground to try this one. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't get your foot stuck and topple over like a, you know, uh, an army figurine onto your head. But yes, I can see how that would work. Anyone... Anyone would say that I'm not a professional um, <laughs> workout coach. Uh, I, can't, I can't wait for the Will Crouch YouTube instructional fitness series. <laughs> so I did take on this role in the early stages of the pandemic, the house I was in. I would go outside every lunch at 1pm and put on my best Scottish accent. And I'd be like, right, you wee pricks. <laughs> Get on the floor and give me 20. <laughs> Very effective. <laughs> Never made it to YouTube, though. (laughs) Well, you know, it's never too late. So a couple of things real quick. The first is these exercises, did you do them every day in the morning? Did you do them midday? How many days a week? At what time of day? So I almost always work out just after lunch. People always complain to me. It's like, oh, you'll get a sore stomach or something. I'm like, but I don't. Never happens. But I deliberately time it because I have a real energy dip just after lunch. And so 
doing something that's just not work makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, after sitting for a few hours, you can break up the two exactly. marathons of sitting. And I'll make one, one other recommendation for folks who may also suffer from occasional or chronic low back tightness, which has been an issue for me also if I sit a lot. And it ends up affecting my sleep most significantly and can cause that type of anterior pelvic tilt and lordosis. So if your gut is sticking out and you look like you're fat or pregnant, even though you are not, perhaps that means your pelvis is pouring forward. So if you think about your pelvis as a goblet or a cup full of water, if you're pouring that water out the front, you have anterior pelvic tilt. And one of the causes of that or contributing factors can be a really tight iliopsoas or iliacus that then in some fashion connects to the lower back, the lumbar. And so you get this incredible tightness slash pain. For me, it can cause tossing and turning at night and really affect my sleep. And the device that was recommended to me a few times before I finally bit the bullet and got it was something called the SoRite, P-S-O hyphen R-I-T-E. It's the most expensive piece of plastic you'll ever buy, <laughs> but worth it at something like 50 to $70 for self-release of the SOAS, which is incredibly difficult to achieve, I find, incredibly difficult to achieve by yourself otherwise. And most, a lot of soft tissue therapists are not particularly good at helping with it, nor is it practical really to necessarily have that type of work done every day, even if you could. So the so right is helpful. All right. So let's move from personal long-termism, making sure that, that you're <laughs> able to function and not be decrepit when you're 45 into the broader sense and discussion of long-termism. What is long-termism and why did you write this book? Well, long-termism is about three things. It's about taking seriously the sheer scale of the future that might be ahead of us and just how high the stakes are in anything that could shape that future. It's then about trying to assess what are the events that might occur in our lifetimes that really would have impacts, not just for the present generation, but that could potentially shape the entire course of humanity's future. And then third, to then figure out, like, okay, how do we ensure that we can take actions to put humanity onto the right path. And I think you're exactly right to talk about personal long-termism and the analogy there, because in the book, in What We Are the Future, I talk about the analogy between the present world and humanity and an imprudent teenager, like a reckless teenager, where what are the really high-stakes decisions that a teenager makes? It's like not what you do at a weekend. Instead, it's the decisions that would impact the entire course of your life. So in the book, I you know, tell a story where I was quite a reckless teenager. I nearly killed myself climbing up a building. That was one of the biggest decisions, dumbest decisions like I ever made. Because if I had died, then it would have been 60, 70 years of life that I would have lost. In the same way, if humanity dies now, you know, if we cause our own extinction or the end of, of an unrecoverable end of civilization, such as by a worst case pandemic, then we're losing, well, not just 70 years of life, it's thousands, millions, even billions of years of future civilization. And so similarly, if I made decisions as a teenager that affected the kind of whole course of my life, like whether to become a poet or a philosopher, or, you know, I could have become a doctor. And similarly, I think in the coming century, in our lifetime, humanity potentially makes decisions about how is future society structured? What are the values we live by? Is society 
a liberal democracy around the world or is it a totalitarian state? And how do we handle technologies like AI that I think could impact the very, very long run? So I want to read just a paragraph that you sent me, which I found thought-provoking because it's a framing that I had not heard before. And here it goes. Imagine the entire human story from the first Homo sapiens of East Africa to our eventual end, represented as a single life. Where in that life do we stand? We can't know for sure, but suppose humanity lasted only a tenth as long as the typical mammalian species. Even then, more than 99% of this life would lie ahead. On the scale of a typical life, humanity today would just be six months old. But we might well survive even longer, for hundreds of millions of years until the Earth is no longer habitable or far beyond. In that case, humanity is experiencing its first blinking moments out of the womb. And I appreciated this framing because my feeling, at least with my audience of listeners, is that there's a small percentage who are rushing headlong into battle with some vision of long-termism and feel committed to fighting the good fight and a non-trivial percentage have decided it's too late, right? They've decided that the end is nigh. We are the frog in the water, slowly heating that will be boiling before we know it. And I find this at least, whether we put aside for the second, how people might find fault with it or pick at it, a useful counterframe, right? Just to even sit with for a few minutes. Why do you think it's important to at least consider that something like this is plausible? Maybe it's not 90% likely, but let's just say it's even 10%, 20% likely. Well, it's so important just because future generations matter, future people matter. And whatever you value, whether that's, you know, well-being or happiness, or maybe it's accomplishment, maybe it's great works of art, maybe it's scientific discovery, almost all of whatever you value would be in the future rather than now. Because the future just could be vast indeed, where if you look at like what has been accomplished since the dawn of humanity, well, dawn of humanity was the end of 1,000 years ago. Agriculture was 12,000 years ago. Industrial revolution was 250 years ago. And yet... Even on the scale of a typical mammal species, we have 700,000 years to go. Now, we're not a typical mammal species. We could last only a few centuries. We could last 10 years if we really do ourselves in in the short term. But we could last much longer. And that just means that all of what we might achieve, all of the good things that humanity could produce, they're basically in the future. And that's really worth thinking about taking seriously and trying to protect and promote. You know, one thing that you and I were chatting a bit about, I brought it up before we started talking, is the question of if it is possible to make, let's just call it altruism, or in this case, long-termism, investing in a future we will not necessarily, most likely, see ourselves. Can you make that self-interested, or how do you position it such that it appeals to the greatest number of people possible since our collective destiny depends on some critical mass of people taking it seriously, right? It can't probably isn't one person. <laughs> We're not going to get, say, 9 billion people. So how many do we hope to embrace this philosophy? 
And is it possible to position it as self-interested? And this is going to be a bit of a ramble, so I apologize in advance. But when you were talking about Dostoevsky and nihilism almost as a proof and him ultimately landing on God, like, yeah, you kind of need to something resembling God to sort of make sense of this sea of uncertainty so that you can maybe stabilize oneself and feel a sense of meaning. It brought to mind something I read very recently, and I apologize, this is, again, going to be a bit of a meander, but this is something that Russ Roberts included, so famous for Econ Talk podcast, in an article he wrote called My 12 Rules for Life. Now, he is, I'm not sure this is the best descriptor, but culturally and I would think religiously Jewish. So he has that as a sort of lattice work of sorts. But number two in his 12 rules for life was find something healthy to worship. And I'm just going to take a second to read this. He quoted David Foster Wallace, and I'm going to tie this into what I just said in a second. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it YHWH, not sure what that is, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles that is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Okay. Uh, and then dot, dot, dot. But the most important thing to remember is not to worship yourself. Not as easy as it sounds. So I'm wondering if long-termism in a sense, doesn't need to be spun to envelop self-interest if it is basically something to worship that gives you purpose when there is so much uncertainty and chaos and entropy around us. Anyway, long TED Talk. Thank you for coming. But <laughs> what are your thoughts on on any of that? And the overarching question is, how do we make long-termism catch to have some critical mass of people who who really embrace it i think there's a really important insight there actually one made by john stuart mill in a speech to parliament at the end of the 19th century and he asks this question like what should we do for posterity after all what has posterity ever done for us (laughs) and then actually he makes the argument like posterity's done a lot of things for us because the projects we have only have meaning in so far as we think that they might contribute to this kind of relay race among the generations. So here's a thought experiment. There's this film, Children of Men, and in it, people are just unable to reproduce. And so it's not that anyone dies, there's no catastrophe that kills everybody, but there's no future of human civilization. You know, how would that change your life? And I think for many, many people and many, many projects, it would just rob those projects of meaning. I certainly wouldn't be as nearly as interested in intellectual pursuits or like trying to do good things or so on. Maybe I would to some extent, but for a lot of things, it seems like, oh, they have meaning because take scientific inquiry. Is this semi-built cathedral of knowledge that has, I have inherited from 
all of my ancestors that has then been passed to us. And it is incomplete. So we've got general relativity and we've got quantum theory and they're amazing, but we also know they're incomplete and like maybe we can work harder and see farther and build the cathedral a little higher. But if it's like, no, actually it'll just get torn up. It's kind of like, oh, you're painting an artwork and you can add to the painting a bit and like it's going to just go in the shredder <laughs> the day afterwards. You're not going to be very motivated to do it. And so one thing I think that a lot of people find motivating is this thought that you're part of this grand project, much, much grander than yourself, of trying to build a good and flourishing society over the course of not just centuries, but thousands of years. And that's one way in which our lives have meaning. What do you hope the effect will be on people who read What We Are the Future? What are you hoping some of the things will be that they take from that? The number one thing is just a worldview that's what my colleague Nick Boston calls getting the big picture roughly right. So there are just so many problems that the world faces today, so many things you could be focusing on and paying attention to. But there's this question just, well, what's most important? What should be taking most of our attention? And the ideas in the book, I hope, give a partial answer, which is, well, the things that are most important are those that really shape the long-term future of the human project. And that really narrows things down, I think. So that's kind of broad kind of worldview. More specifically, though, um, I would like it to be something that guides the decisions people make over the course of their lives. So I think the biggest decision people make are what career they pursue. So do you go and become a management consultant or a financier and make money and live in the suburbs? Or do you instead like pursue a life that's really trying to make the world better? And if so, then what problems are you focusing on? Where it seems to me some of the biggest problems are the development of very advanced, or the biggest issues or events that will occur in our lifetime are the development of advanced artificial intelligence, in particular artificial intelligence that's as smart as humans, or maybe considerably smarter. I think that has a good claim to being one of the most important technological discoveries of all time, once we get to that point. And that point, very good chances in the coming decades. A second is the risk of very catastrophic pandemics, things that are far worse than COVID-19, which again, I think are just in the horizon because of developments in our ability to create new viruses. And a third is a third world war, which again, if you look at history and look at leading scholars underlying models of war, I think it's like a really pretty good chance we see a third world war in our lifetime, something like one in three. And I think that could quite plausibly have just unparalleled destruction and misery on the world in the limit just being the end of civilization, whether that's because of nuclear warheads scaling up a hundredfold and um, being used in an all-out nuclear war, or because of the use of bioweapons. So these are all things that like smart people who read this book could go and work on. I'm aware that that, again, kind of sounds bleak, but uh, perhaps the final thing is like, there is this positive vision in the book too, which is that if we avoid these threats or like manage these technological transitions well, we really can just create a future that's truly amazing. And this is present kind of throughout the book. I did feel like I hadn't fully given it its due. So there's a little Easter egg in the book as well, right in the final page, a QR code that sketches a little vision of a positive future. 
<laughs> in uh, yeah short story form. But maybe that's the final thing of all in terms of this worldview is appreciating there's so much at stake. There are enormous risks that we face or threats that we face that we need to manage. But if we do, then we can create a world that is flourishing and vibrant and wonderful for our grandkids, for their grandkids, for their grandkids. What is value lock-in? And could you give some historical examples? So value lock-in is when a single ideology or value system or kind of set of ideologies takes control of an area or in the limit the whole world and then persists for an extremely long time. And this is one thing that I think can have very, very long-lasting effects. And we've already seen it throughout history. And so in, the, in What We Are the Future, I give a story of ancient China. So during this period that's known as the Hundred Schools of Thought, the Zhu dynasty had fallen, and there was a, like, a lot of kind of fragmentation, ideological fragmentation in China. And wandering philosophers would go from state to state with a package of kind of philosophical ideas and moral views and political policy recommendations and try and convince political elites of their ideas. And there were four main schools. There were the Confucians that we're kind of most familiar with, the Legalists, which are kind of like Machiavellian political realists, um, just, you know, how do you get power was the main focus of them. The Taoists, who are these kind of more, somewhat more spiritual, like acting in accordance with the way with nature, like advocating spontaneity, honesty. And then finally, the Moists, which I read and I'm like, wow, they were kind of similar to the effect of altruists, except in ancient China, where they were about promoting good outcomes and good outcomes impartially considered. They forewent much like fancy spending on luxury or ritual. So their funeral rites were very modest. They wore very modest clothes. And they were just really concerned about trying to make the world better. And so they created a paramilitary group in order to defend cities that were under siege. The reasoning being that if defensive technology and defensive strategy was so good, then no one could ever wage a war because no one could ever win. And so there was this great diversity of thought. But what happened? One state within China, the Qin, influenced by legalism, took over and tried to essentially make legalism state orthodoxy. And the Emperor Qin declared himself a 10,000-year emperor, wanted this ideology to persist indefinitely. It actually only lasted 14 years because there was a kind of counter-rebellion. And that was the start of the Han Dynasty, which then successfully did, basically, over the course of a while, quell kind of other ideological competition and instead implemented Confucianisms like this is the official state ideology. And that persisted for 2,000 years. And that's kind of just one example among many. Over and over again, you see what's the kind of ideology or belief set of a ruling power, whether that's Catholics or Protestants, or is it the communism of the Khmer Rouge of Stalin, or National Socialism of Hitler. Once that ideology gets into power, people with those ideology get into power, they quickly try and stomp out the competition. And the worry is that that could happen with the entire world. So again, I spoke of a risk of Third World War. Well, what might happen as a result? One ideology could take power globally after winning such a war, implement a world government, a world state, or at least dominant world ideology. Then we're in this situation where there's much less ideological competition. And at least one reason why we've gotten moral change and moral progress over time, which is in virtue of having a diversity of moral views that are able to like kind of fight it out in the 
in ideal circumstances, the best argument wins. We would no longer have that. And so if there was a single kind of dominant ideology in the world, that could persist for an extremely long time, I think. And if it was wrong, which is quite likely to be wrong, because I think most of our moral views are probably wrong, that would be like very bad indeed. I mean, just to give you an idea, I mean, this is not exactly ideological, but you mentioned the Han dynasty and you know, Mandarin Chinese. One way to say Mandarin Chinese is Han Yu, which is the language of the Han yeah, people. Yeah, Han. Yeah, like, exactly. like Han Yu Pinyin is the romanization system used, which most people have seen with the diacritical march for tones for Mandarin Chinese. So these things can yeah. last a very long time indeed. Do you have any other examples of value? lock-in that could be past tense, historical examples, or attempts that are being made currently that you think are worth making mention of? Could be either. I mean, historically, one particularly salient example, or striking example, was when the Khmer Rouge took power in Cambodia. Pol Pot, just very systematically, like anyone who disagreed with the party ideology generally would just be executed. So 25% of the population were killed in Cambodia. And he, I mean, he, again, it's like very transparent what's happening. He has this quote, purify the party, purify the army, purify the cadres. So it's just very clear that what's going on is almost like a species or virus kind of taking over and other <laughs> competitors get wiped out. This one ideology takes over, competitors are wiped out. Similarly, if we look at like British history with at different times, Catholics and Protestants taking power. There was one act passed called the Act of Uniformity, which with Protestants saying like, okay, Catholicism is now banned in this country. And again, it's like very boldly named. And in general, just if you have a particular moral view, then you are going to want everyone else in the world to have that particular moral view as well. So of AI, pathogens, let's just say bioweapons, we can include yep, yep. in that, World War Three. How would you rank those for you personally in terms of concern over the next, Concerns. let's call it, let's call it 10 years? Over the next 10 years, I'd be most concerned about AI. Over the next 50 years, let's say my lifetime, I'd be both most concerned about AI and war. Developments in AI, the reason I say that is wars are most likely when two countries are very similar kind of military power and the kind of historical rate of one major power in the world, like one of the big economies of the world going to war with another when it kind of gets overtaken economically or militarily, it's pretty high. Some estimate, some ways of modeling put a size like 50% for AI, but I think that's more likely to happen not kind of within the next 10 years, though it's definitely possible that there would be some kind of outbreak of war, such as between the US and China, even though the risk of war between the US and Russia is definitely higher than it has been in the last, I guess, 30 years, potentially. I still think the odds are like quite low, thankfully. With AI, on the other hand, I think the chance of very rapid and surprisingly rapid developments in AI within the next 10 years are higher than any 10-year point after that. So as in 2020s, it's more likely there'll be some truly transformative development than 2030s or 2040s, is my kind of view. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that 
if you look at like how much computing power different brains use, and you compare that with how much computing power the kind of current language models use, or the biggest kind of AI systems use, the biggest AI systems use the computing power of approximately the brain of a honeybee. It's kind of hard to estimate exactly, but that's kind of where we are, which is a lot smaller than you might think. It's much smaller than I thought. And you might think like, okay, it's the point in time where you've got AI systems that are about as powerful as human brains. That's like a really crucial moment in time because that's, you know, potentially the point in time at which AI systems just become more powerful than us, or at least approximately then when we start to get overtaken. And that, again, it's like very uncertain, but there's a decent, pretty good chance that happens in something like 10 years time. And now it's very hard to do technological prediction. I am not making any confident predictions about how things go down, but it's at least something we should be paying attention to just from a kind of outside perspective. If you think, oh yeah. And then we're at the point where we're like training these AI systems that are like doing as much computing as the brain is. That's like, okay, well, it means maybe they're going to be just of a similar level of power and ability as human brains. And then that's really big. And that's kind of big for a few reasons, I think. One is because it could speed up rates of technological discovery. So historically, we've had like fairly steady technologically driven economic growth. That's actually over a couple of hundred years. But that's because of two things happening. One is ideas get progressively harder to find, but we throw more and more researchers. So we have like a bigger population. We throw a larger percentage of the population at them. If instead we can just create engineers and research scientists that are AI systems, then we could rapidly increase the amount of R&D that's happening. And what's more, perhaps they'd be much, much better at doing research than we are. Human brains are definitely not designed for doing science, but we could create machines that really are. And in the same way that Go, the best AI systems are far, far better than even the very best human systems now, the same could happen within science. And if you plug that into like pretty standard economic models, you get the conclusion that okay, suddenly things start really moving like really very fast. And you might get many centuries worth of technological progress happening over the course of a few years or a decade. And that could be terrific. That's what a lot of the, you know, in a sense, I think both the kind of the optimists and the doomsayers are correct, where that could be amazing. If it gets handled very well, then it could be radical abundance for everyone. We could solve all the other problems in the world. If it gets handled badly, well, the course of that tech development could be dangerous pathogens, or it could enable us to lose control to AI systems, or it could be involved like misuse by humans themselves. There's a lot of things going on that could be extremely important from the long-term perspective. Well, let's go into it more. I mean, I, as a simpleton, assume that pretty much any new technology is going to be applied to porn and warfare first, and that those two would also sort of reciprocally drive forward a lot of new technology. I'm, I'm actually only 10% joking. Well, do you know Dahl E2? I do, actually. Yes, I'm going to be using it a bunch this week. Oh, fantastic. Well, for listeners who don't know, it's a fairly recent AI system, and you can tell it to produce a certain image using text. So maybe that image is an astronaut riding a unicorn in space in the style of Andy Warhol. And it will create a near-perfect rendition of that. And you can really say a lot of things. You can say, oh, I want a hybrid of a dolphin and a horse. 
riding on a unicycle and it will just create a picture of that. It's really like in a way that really makes it seem like it understands the words you're telling it. And at the moment, it does faces, well, it can create like faces of imaginary people, almost picture perfect. Again, if you pay close attention, you can see like weird details. When you say imaginary people, what do you mean? As in non, so if you type in like a picture of Boris Johnson, Mm-hmm. then it will not give you a picture of Boris Johnson. And I don't know this for sure, but my strong guess is that's because it's been deliberately restrained so that it right. does not do that. So it doesn't deep fake everything. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Because um, you were mentioning porn. With that technology, you could, well, fill in the blanks. I'll let you think of your own text prompts that you could put in involving you know, Joe Biden or Tim Ferriss or whoever you want. <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden Who, and Tim Ferriss. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah exactly. Brothers <laughs> Johnson too. You're all in the flame. <laughs> Who knew oh. you were such good friends? Oh God. The horror, the horror. <laughs> so to my knowledge, that's not been used for porn yet, but I think the technology would make it completely possible. And then is it going to be used for warfare? Like, absolutely. I mean, there'll be a point in time when we can automate weaponry. So at the moment, part of the cost of going to war is that your people, part of your population will die. That's also a check on dictatorial leaders as well. You need to at least keep the army on your side, otherwise there'll be a military coup. Now imagine if there's a world where the army is entirely automated. Well, dictators can be much more reassured because their army can be entirely loyal to them. It's just coded in. Also, the costs of going to war are much lower as well, because, yeah, you're no longer sustaining casualties on your own side. And so that's just one way in which technological advances could be hugely disruptive via AI. And it's far from the biggest way, I think. Let's take uh, just a short intermission from Skynet and <laughs> World War Three, just for a second. And we're going to come back to exploring some of those. But what are some actual long-termist projects today that you are excited about? So one that I'm extremely excited about is investment in and development of a technology called far UVC lighting. So far UVC is just a very specific and quite narrow spectrum of light. And with sufficient intensity, just put into light bulbs, it seems like that just sterilizes a room. We're not confident in this yet. We need more research on its efficacy and safety. But if this was just installed in all lighting in every house around the world, basically in the same way that we do for fire regulation, every house, at least in a relatively well-off country, has to meet certain standards for fire safety. could also have to meet certain standards for disease safety, like having light bulbs with UVC light as part of them. Then we would make a very substantial progress to never having a pandemic again as well as, as a bonus, eradicating all respiratory disease. And so this is like some extremely exciting technology. There's a foundation that I've been spending a lot of time helping to set up over the last six months called Future Fund. This is something that like, yeah, we're donating to and investing in because, yeah, it just could make an absolute transformative difference. So that's one. Um, other things that are very concrete within the biotech space include early detection of new pathogens. So just constantly sampling wastewater or constantly testing healthcare workers and doing like full spectrum diagnostics of like just all the DNA in the sample, excluding human DNA. Is there anything there that we just 
looks like a pathogen and we don't understand so that we can kind of react to new pandemics fairly quickly. Also, more boringly, just like better PPE, where you could just have, you know, you put on your super PPE hood and you're now just completely protected from any sorts of pathogens. That could enable society to continue, even if there was an outbreak of a really bad pandemic. So that's very exciting within biotech. Within AI, there's a lot of work on technical AI safety, where the idea is just using methods to ensure that AI systems do what we want them to do. That means, even if they're very powerful, not trying to seek power and disempower the people who uh, created them, not being deceptive, not causing harm. And there are various things you can do there, including with these kind of, you know, not as sophisticated models that we're currently using, like tests to see if they are acting deceptively, what structures you can use to make them not act deceptively. Can we have better interpretability so that we actually understand what the hell is going on with these AI models? Because at the moment, they're very non-transparent. We really don't know, like, what's, how do they get to a particular answer? (laughs) It's just this huge computational process that where we've like trained it via learning over in computer time is like extremely long time. So maybe it's like tens of thousands or even millions of games of Go that's played. And now it's like very good at Go, but like what's the reasoning that's going on? We don't really know. And then, yeah, we could keep going as well. It's just like many, many things within technical AI safety. And then there's the governance side of things, both for AI, for other technologies, for reducing the risk of World War III, Here, I kind of admit it gets tough. It's like very hard to measure and be confident that we're doing stuff that's actively good. And we have to hope a little bit more that just having smart, thoughtful, competent people in positions of political influence where they're able to understand the arguments on both sides and put in policies and regulation in place such that like we more carefully navigate these big technological advances or such that we don't go to war, (laughs) Um, or face some sort of race dynamic between different countries. That is also just like extremely important to me in my view. Okay, let me take a pause to jump back to a number of the questions I have next to me. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, or if you feel you've lost your focus temporarily, what do you do? You know, are there questions you ask yourself, activities? Because I think it is easy, maybe I'll just speak for myself, to feel like there's so much potentially coming down the pike that is mm-hmm. an existential threat <laughs> that it's easiest just to curl up into a, uh, the fetal position and just scroll through TikTok or Instagram <laughs> and pretend yeah. like it, it, it isn't coming. So not saying that is where you end up, but when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused or underfocused, what do you do? For me, it's most often driven by dropping my mood. Yeah. So I've had issues with depression since forever, basically. Although now it just is far, far better. Like I think, I normally say I'm something like five to 10 times happier than I was a decade ago. Hmm. It's pretty good. That um, is good. Happy, yeah. happy about that. And so I have a bit of, have you heard of the term of a triggered action plan? Say that one more time. I'm not sure if this is the word or the Scottish accent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> trigger, ha, action, ha, trigger. <laughs> trigger action plan. <laughs> yeah, there. <laughs> oh my God, I've Shrek on the podcast. This is amazing. All right, go ahead. Yeah, trigger action plan. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> the idea is um, there's a trigger, like some event that you hit 
that happens. And it's just like when that event happens, you immediately just put into place some action. So a fire alarm goes off. Then it's like everyone knows what to do. There's the fire drill. You follow the fire drill. You like stand up, you walk outside, you leave your belongings. And it's like, it's so that you don't have to think in complex situations. I do that, but for when I have like low mood, where the thing that has been very bad in the past is when it's like, oh, I've got low mood, so I'm not being as effective and productive, so I'm going to have to work even harder, and therefore I beat myself up, and it makes it even worse. So instead, what I do is I'm just like, if I notice my mood is really slumping, and therefore it's harder to work, I just bump, like, fix my mood to, like, top of my to-do list. <laughs> becomes, like, the most important priority, where the crucial thing is not to let it spiral. The number one thing I do is just I go to the gym or go for a run. Because there I'm like, look, I want to do this a certain amount of time per week anyway. It's something I enjoy. I find it like recreation. So worst case, I'm just moving time around. Similarly, I'll probably meditate as well. Then at the same time, in terms of think how I think, I have, again, certain kind of cached thoughts that I found very helpful. So one is just thinking about how it's like, yep, this happens before and it's not the end of the world. It's been okay. If I've gotten through this before, it's just I'll be able to get through it again, probably. Second is just thinking about no longer assessing like the individual day that I'm having, but instead some like larger chunk of time where it's easy to beat yourself up if you're like, look, I've had just the shittest day and I've done nothing. What a loser. Whereas if you're like, okay, well, how have I done over the last three years or 10 years or like my whole life? And at least assuming you feel kind of okay about that, which I do, then that's very reassuring. It's like, okay, I've had a shit day, but like if someone were to write a history of my last few years, they probably wouldn't talk about this day. They talk about the other things. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, I've got a little bit in the bank there. So even if I just take the whole day off in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. That combined with like taking a bit of time away from whatever's making me plunge. And then like exercise, I just find has a mood boost as well. But then also gives time for these thoughts to really percolate and sink in generally means that I can just then like come back a couple of hours later and be pretty refreshed. But the key thing is just like, once this happens, you just, you just do the thing and you stop thinking. It's like, look, this is what my plan is. Can you say trigger action plan one more time in a heavy Scottish accent? Trigger action plan. That's what you need, pal. <laughs> I'm going to put that right at the Did- beginning of the podcast. <laughs> Oh, so good. So good. Uh, thank uh, na- you. Thank na- you. Na- 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 <laughs> you know, if this long-termism, effective altruism philosophy thing doesn't work out for you, I think you have a future in voice acting. So you always have effective that. Effective altruism is about doing the most you can. <laughs> Not being a wee girl's blows. <laughs> I don't know why, if you speak in Scot- yeah, speak in this proper Scottish accent, suddenly you've got to be somewhat aggressive and like insulting <laughs> yeah. someone otherwise it just doesn't quite work it doesn't quite work you yeah. can't whisper <laughs> an aggressive scottish accent it's very hard yeah, uh, exactly. very very challenging i'm not even going to try that it would be embarrassing but yeah. let's hop back into ai for a moment so you hang sure. out with a lot of the smart cool kids and very technical people who really understand mm-hmm. this stuff when they talk about robots gone bad or just the plausible scenarios that would be very bad. What are they? Like, what are the two or three things that they would see as a, an event or a development that would 
sort of be the equivalent of the trigger action plan, right? Where it's like, oh, this is yeah. like life before and life after. What are the, say, two or three or one to three scenarios that they've honed in on? I think there are two, from my perspective, two extremely worrying scenarios. Um, one is that AI systems get just much more powerful than human systems. And they have goals that are misaligned with human goals. And they realize that human beings are standing away of them achieving their goals. And so they take control. And perhaps that means they just wipe everyone out. Perhaps they don't even need to. So an analogy is often given between like the rise of Homo sapiens from the perspective of the chimpanzees, where Homo sapiens were just smarter. They were able to work together. They just had these advantages. And that just means the chimpanzees just have very little say in how things go over the long term. Basically no say. It's not that we made them extinct, although in a sense they're kind of lucky. We made many. In fact, I think we made most of large animals extinct due to the rise of Homo sapiens. But that could happen with AI as well. We could be to the AI systems what chimpanzees are to humans. Or perhaps it's actually more extreme because once you've got AI systems that are smarter than you and they're building AI systems that are smarter again, maybe it's more like we're like ants looking at humans when we're <laughs> looking at advanced AI systems. Give me the second one and then I'm going to come back to the first one with okay. just a sci-fi thought experiment. And then the second one is like, okay, even assume that we do manage to align AI systems with human goals. So we can really get them to do whatever they want. Nonetheless, this could be a very scary thing where if you do think that AI systems could lead to much faster rates of technological progress, in particular by you know automating technological discovery, including the creation of better AI systems. So like we've got AI writing the code that builds the next generation of AI, that then writes even better code to build the next generation of AI. Things could happen like very quickly. Well, even if you manage to have AI systems do exactly what you want them to do, well, that could concentrate power in a very small number of hands. Could be a single country, could be a company, could be like an individual within a single country who wants to instill a dictatorship. And then once you've got that power, it's kind of similar to what happened during the Industrial Revolution and earlier. So Europe got more and more powerful technology over that period. And what did it do? It used it to colonize and subjugate a very large fraction of the world. In the same way, it could happen, but even faster, that a small group gets such power and use it to essentially take over the world. And then once it's in power, well, once you've got AI systems, I think you're able to have indefinite social control in a way that's like very worrying. And this is value lock-in again, where at the limit, imagine you're kind of the dictator of a totalitarian state like 1984, The Handmaid's Tale or something, and that, that's a global totalitarian state, and you really want your ideology to persist forever, well, you can pass that ideology on to this AI successor. It just says, like, yep, you rule the world now. And the AI does not need to, has no need to die. It's like software. It can replicate itself indefinitely. So unlike dictators, which will die off eventually, causing a certain amount of change to occur. Well, this is not true for the AI. It could replicate itself indefinitely. And it could be like in every area of society. And so then when you've got that, it's like, why would we expect moral change after that point? And it's like kind of hard to see. 
So in general, I think there can be these states where you get into a particular state of the world and you just kind of can't get out of it again. And this kind of Orwellian perpetual like totalitarianism is actually one of the things I really worry about. Okay. So... Again, this is a happy book. It's an happy yeah, yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so within the context of our discussion of the happy book, you talked about, I think it was the Moists. I can't remember the term you used, but mm-hmm. you mentioned they were similar to effective altruism and they formed a paramilitary group. When are you forming the effective altruism paramilitary group, counter AI insurgency squad? Is that in the works? Well, there is an analogy between we haven't yet we haven't yet got our own army. Um, probably, probably that won't happen. I think things are going pretty weird if they have, and I might need to <laughs> might need to intervene at that point. But there is an analogy where they built very powerful and created very good defensive technology. So you got trebuchets, very powerful for attacking. You say trebuchet, set- trebuchets, or trebuchet? Yeah, it's like a catapult, what is but that? better. It's like a, it's got a it's got a sling on it. Is that what it is? It's like yeah, a catapult exactly. with a sling. So you get the uh, yeah. It's like an addle addle, but for throwing much bigger things. Anyway, the physics yeah. involved are I think the same. Yeah. Yep, yeah, for sure. But you know, also walls are a defensive technology. If you had just really good walls, really good defenses, then <laughs> I thought you said wolves for a second. I was like, wow, I did not <laughs> did not see that coming. We're gonna have to yeah. resurrect the wolf if we want to have any hope of defensive wolf technology. All right, walls. Yeah, continue. Well. They are training eagles to attack drones, so <laughs> it's not like it's not so insane. <laughs> yeah, all right, walls. We have yes. wolves to attack the robot overlords. I don't back the wolves. I've got to say, <laughs> um, but we can think in the same terms of look. There's certain technology that has kind of offensive advantage, so the ability to design new pathogens. There's certain technology that's like has a defensive advantage like this far UVC radiation. And so one of the things we're doing is really trying to develop and speed up kind of defensive technology. And so similarly, when you look at AI, there's some things that are just pure capabilities. It's just AI getting more and more powerful. And then there are some things that are helpful in making sure that AI is safe, like understanding what's under the hood of these models um, just means that like, okay, we know what's going on a bit better. We can like use it better. We can predict what sort of behavior it'll have. Let's talk about defensive capabilities. I'll just give another example of an asymmetric offense-defense situation, which would be drone warfare. So the mm-hmm. the ability to create weaponized, potentially lethal drones and swarms and so on is much lower than the cost to defend against them, generally speaking, right? I mean, certainly mm-hmm. that becomes true if you start to combine targeted bioweapons with drones, things get really expensive to, at best, to defend against. But let's let's talk about my sci-fi scenario. Sure. So when you use the analogies of humans and chimps, or the analogy of the industrial revolution and the technological gains in Western Europe predominantly, which then allowed the physical, and that's the word I'll underscore, sort of subjugation and colonization and dominance of a significant percentage of the world's population. I suppose there's part of me that on a simplistic level is feels like, even though this would not be easy to do, because it would be sort of like a homicide-suicide for a lot of folks, the more interdependent we become. But it's like, all right, if AI is constrained to 
a physical infrastructure that is dependent upon power, would not part of the defensive planning or preemptive planning go into trying to restrict AI to something that can be unplugged, to put it really simply. Mm -hmm. But how are people playing out this hypothetical scenario, right? So would the AI, presumably, if, if it's as smart or smarter than we are, foresee this and then develop sort of solar-powered extensions of itself so it can do a b and c i mean how are people i'm sure this is part of the conversation i've just never had it so what are smarter people exploring with respect to this type of stuff i think actually your nose is pointed in a good direction on this one and it's this sort of thing that makes me among my peers on the more optimistic end of thinking that advanced ai would not kill everybody where yeah you could have like air-gapped computers so they're not can't access the internet now that don't have other ways of kind of controlling the world apart from kind of text output and they've been trained to act as kind of oracles so you just ask them a question and they give you ideally like very justified kind of true answer and perhaps you have many of these as well you've got like a dozen of them and they don't know that the others exist and then you just start asking them for help <laughs> so you're like okay we're going to start building these like incredibly powerful AI systems that are much, much smarter and more generally able than we are. Like, what should we do? What should our plan be? And so that's a pathway where it's like, you're using AI to help solve the problems that we will face with even more powerful AI. And what's the response? I mean, some people would say, oh, well, if the AI systems are really that powerful, they're like far better than humans, they will then trick you. <laughs> so, and they will be able to do that just by outputting text and telling you like, oh, do this thing or do this thing. And that will all be this like long deceptive play. And I just think that's unlikely. That just seems pretty speculative to me. I don't have like strong reasons to think that we would have that. The current AI systems we have are more like, you know, they just output text. It's not like they're an agent that's like trying to do things in the world. You just put in the text in input. It gives you a text output, at least for language models. And potentially we can scale that up to the point where they're like these kind of sages and boxes. I think that's a significant pathway by which we make even more powerful AI systems that are kind of agentic, are kind of acting, you know, have a model of the world and are trying to do things in the world, that we make them safe. But that's exactly a good example of, yeah, again, kind of differential technological progress where an AI system that's just like this article in a box <laughs> separated from the rest of the world, that seems very good from a defensive perspective. Whereas an AI system that's been trained on like war games and then it's just like released into the open seems like potentially very bad. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. Robots gone wild. <laughs> Are you going to create a new subreddit? <laughs> I don't know if I'll create a subreddit. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to start digging spider holes in my backyard and learning how to you know, hunt with bow and arrow, but you know, all things in due time. <laughs> what are the most important actions people can take now? Right, what are some actions for people who are like, I want to be an agent of change. I want to mm -hmm. feel some locus of, if not control, at least free will. I don't want to just lay on my back and wait for the cyborg raptors to descend upon me or to become a house pet for some dictator in a foreign land who overtakes the U.S. as a superpower, whatever it is, right? Yep. I want to actually do something. What, what are some of the most important 
or maybe impactful actions that, that people can take? So I think there's kind of two pathways for such a person. One, you might be motivated to help, but you don't really want to rejig your whole life. Ideally, perhaps you just don't really want to have to think about this again, <laughs> but you do want to be doing good. Then I think the option of donations is just particularly good. So you could take the Giving What We Can pledge, you make a 10% donation every year of your income, and then you can give to somewhere like the Long-Term Future Fund as part of EA funds, and it'll get redistributed to what some kind of domain experts think are the highest impact things to do in this space. That's the kind of like baseline response or something. And I think it's important to emphasize you can do an enormous amount of good there. You know, there's a lot of ways we could spend money to do good things in the world, including from this long-term perspective. The second is if you're like, no, actually, I want to yeah, be more actively a kind of agent of change. Then I think the first thing to do is to learn more. You know, I've tried to pack as much as I can into a book, but I think there's a lot to engage with. <laughs> I mean, the book is what we are the future. You know, it's talking about some big philosophical ideas. It's also just covering a lot of a broad ground of different disciplines, different issues. Like, you know, we talked about AI and BioRisk and World War Three. There's plenty of other issues I didn't talk about. We haven't talked about nukes. We haven't talked about technological stagnation, which I think is particularly important as well. We also haven't talked even just about promoting better values as well, kind of or more broad ways of making the long-term better. So all of these things are things that I think we can learn Therefore, I'd encourage reading The Precipice by Toby Ord, which I mentioned in my recommended books. Also, 80,000hours.org as well has enormous amounts of content. Openphilanthropy.org also has just a lot of really interesting content. They're a foundation, but they've done some really deep research into some of these topics, such as this issue, which we didn't get to touch of when we should expect human-level intelligence to arise, with some arguments that we should really put a lot of probability mass, like maybe more than 50% on it coming in the next few decades. And then following that, I think the most important single decision is how can you either use or leverage your career or switch career in order to work on some of these you know, most important issues. And again, we've really tried to make this as easy as possible by providing like endless online advice and also like one-on-one -on -one coaching such that people can get advice. And then the final thing would be getting involved with the effective altruism community, where this stuff is hard, it can be intimidating. One of the big things that just is a fact when we start thinking about these more kind of civilizational scale issues compared to the kind of original seed of EA, which is funding these very well-evidenced programs that demonstrably improve health, is like, it can be very overwhelming and it can be hard to know exactly how to fit in. But we now have a community of thousands or tens of thousands of people who are working together and really keen to help each other. And there are many conferences like EA Global um, conferences at places like London, DC, San Francisco, or kind of independently organized conferences, EA Global Xs. In many places, there'll be one in India, for example, in early January, as well as like hundreds of local groups around the world where people get together and can often like provide support and help each other try and figure out like, okay, what is the most impactful thing you can do? So yeah, that would be my kind of laundry list of advice. And with respect to, say, ditching the news, or at least going on a lower information diet with the most manufactured urgency that we get flooded with, and instead spending time looking at big picture trends, or trying to get that big picture roughly right, 
as you put it, both from a historical perspective and a current perspective, would you still recommend for podcasts in our time hosted by Melvin Bragg, I believe discusses history, philosophy, science with leading academics and the 80,000 hours podcast, would those be two you would still recommend? Yeah, I would still strongly recommend them. There's also another podcast, Hear This Idea, by Finn Morehouse and Luca Regetti. I also particularly like Rationally Speaking by Julia Galef as well. It's like very good. And then in terms of websites, if you want the like big picture, like beyond the websites I've already said, to just have like the best big picture understanding of the world, I don't know of a single better source than Our World in Data, which is just, I mean, it was very influential during the COVID pandemic, but it has, you know, if you want to learn about nuclear war or long-run economic growth or world population, it's articles that are presenting both data and like the best understanding of the data in just this like timeless evergreen way with exceptional rigor and exceptional depth. It's just amazing. I use it very heavily to like orient myself for the book. So Will McCaskill, people can find you on Twitter at Will McCaskill, M-A-C-A-S-K-I-L-L on the web, williammccaskill.com. The new book is What We Owe the Future. I recommend people check it out. Is there anything else you would like to add? Any requests to the audience? Anything you'd like to point people to? Any complaints or grievances with this podcast process that you would like to air publicly? Anything at all that you'd like to add before we wrap this conversation up? The main thing to say is just, as we've said over and over again, I think we face truly enormous challenges in our life Many of these challenges are very scary. They can be overwhelming. They can be intimidating. But I really believe that each of us individually can make an enormous difference to these problems. We really can significantly help as part of a wider community to putting humanity onto a better path. And if we do, then the future really could be long and absolutely flourishing. And uh, your great great grandkids will thank you. Well, thank you very much, Will. I always enjoy our conversations and I appreciate the time. Ditto. Thanks so much, Tim. Absolutely. And to everybody listening, I will link to all the resources and the books and websites and so on in the show notes as per usual at tim.blog slash podcast. And until next time, be just a little bit kinder than necessary. And thanks for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday. Type that into your browser, tim.blog slash Friday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Theragun. I have two Theraguns. 
and they are worth their weight in gold. I've been using them every single day. Whether you're an elite athlete or just a regular person trying to get through your day, muscle pain and muscle tension are real things. That's why I use the Theragun. I use it at night, I use it after workouts. It is a handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension. So for instance, at night, I might use it on the bottom of my feet. It's helped with my plantar fasciitis. I will have my girlfriend use it up and down the middle of my back and I'll use it on her. It's an easy way for us to actually trade massages in effect. And you can think of it, in fact, as massage reinvented on some level. Helps with performance, helps with recovery, helps with just getting your back to feel better before bed after you've been sitting for way too many hours. I love this thing. And the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that is surprisingly quiet. It's easy to use and about as quiet as an electric toothbrush. It's pretty astonishing. You really have to feel the Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness to believe it. It's one of my favorite gadgets in my house at this point. So I encourage you to check it out. Try Theragun. That's Thera, T-H-E-R-A-G-U-N. There's no substitute for the Gen 4 Theragun with an OLED screen. That's O-L-E-D. For those wondering, that's organic light-emitting diode screen, personalized Theragun app, and an incredible combination of quiet and power. And the Gen 4 Theraguns start at just $199. I said I have two. I have the Prime, and I also have the Pro, which is like the super Cadillac version. My girlfriend loves the soft attachments on that. So try Theragun for 30 days starting at only $199. Go to therabody.com slash Tim right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. One more time, that's therabody.com slash Tim, T-H-E-R-A-B-O-D-Y.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Viore Clothing, spelled V-U-O-R-I, Viore. I've been wearing Viore at least one item per day for the last few months and you can use it for everything. It's performance apparel, but it can be used for working out. It can be used for going out to dinner, at least in my case. I feel very comfortable with it. Super comfortable, super stylish. And I just want to read something that one of my employees said. She is an athlete. She is quite technical, although she would never say that. I asked her if she had ever used or heard of Viore, and this was her response. I do love their stuff. Been using them for about a year. I think I found them at REI, first for my partner, t-shirts that are super soft but somehow last as he's hard on stuff. And then I got into the super soft cotton yoga pants and jogger sweatpants. I live in them and they too have lasted. They're stylish enough I can wear them out and about. The material is just super soft and durable. I just got their Clementine running shorts for summer and love them. The brand seems pretty popular, constantly sold out. In closing, and I'm abbreviating here, but in closing, with the exception of when I need technical outdoor gear, they're the only brand I've bought in the last year or so for yoga, running, loungewear that lasts and that I think look good also. I like the discreet logo. So that gives you some idea. That was not intended for the sponsor read. Uh, that was just her response via text. Viori, again spelled V-U-O-R-I, is designed for maximum comfort and versatility. You can wear it running. You can wear their stuff training, doing yoga, lounging, weekend errands, or in my case, again, going out to dinner. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Their clothing is so comfortable and uh, it looks so good and it's, it's non-offensive. You don't have a huge brand logo in your face. You'll just want to be in them all the time. And my girlfriend and I have been wearing them 
for the last few months. Their men's core short, K-O-R-E, the most comfortable lined athletic short, is your one short for every sport. I've been using it for kettlebell swings, for runs, you name it. The Banks short, this is their go-to-land to see short, is the ultimate in versatility. It's made from recycled plastic bottles. And what I'm wearing right now, which I had to pick one to recommend to folks out there, or at least to men out there, is the Ponto Performance Pant. And you'll find these at the link I'm gonna give you guys. You can check out what I'm talking about, but I'm wearing them right now. They're thin performance sweatpants, but that doesn't do them justice. So you gotta check it out, P-O-N-T-O, Ponto Performance Pant. For you ladies, the women's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Viore isn't just an investment in your clothing, it's an investment in your happiness. And for you, my dear listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. So get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. It's super popular. A lot of my friends have now noticed are wearing this. And so am I. VioriClothing.com forward slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I Clothing.com slash Tim. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but you'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. So check it out. VioriClothing.com slash Tim. That's V-U-O-R-I Clothing.com slash Tim. And discover the versatility of Viori Clothing. 